Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Hi, I'm Kara Smith. And I'm Stephanie Strauss. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. Today, we are going to be diving into a discussion on an area of practice that most teen therapists would never really find on their radar. Today, we are joined by Michael Gerg, an occupational therapist and certified hand therapist who serves as an expert witness. He is going to explain what an expert witness is and how a hand therapist's knowledge and practice experience is utilized in the legal system. So thank you, Michael, for joining us this evening on ASHT's podcast, Hands in Motion. Well, thank you for having me. So if you don't mind, give us a little bit of a background as far as what your credentials are and just lead us off that way, maybe giving us a little bit of an idea as far as exactly what an expert witness is. Sure. So I'm an occupational therapist and a certified hand therapist. I do have additional certifications in work capacity evaluation as well as ergonomic evaluation. And I, I've been practicing that for 26 years. But I'm sure that many other therapists have gotten phone calls from, let's say, legal nurses or lawyers asking if they would want to do expert witness work. And for many years, I had declined that whenever they would call because I I always thought of it as maybe being a malpractice suit and they would be calling into question another therapist's clinical reasoning. And, and you know, there's many different ways that we do things. So I always felt like I didn't want to really be questioning somebody else's clinical reasoning as far as the choices that they made. But as far as how I got involved in doing expert witness work, I was called by a former colleague of mine who I was I taught with at a university, and she had asked me, because she knew that I had specialty areas in work and ergonomics, and she had a friend who was a lawyer who was looking for an occupational therapist that also had experience in, in work and ergonomics and working with injured workers and workers' compensation. So she had asked if I would at least talk to him and and see if I could help him out and maybe write an opinion on a case that he was working on. And so that was really my first entry into the expert witness world. And I didn't really know other than what I'd seen on watching things on television, you know, like legal shows and things like that, as far as what expert witnesses do. But I would have to say that what they portray on television is kind of really what it is, at least as, as far as if you have to testify. But what an expert witness is, is they're very unique because they're called into a case and they may not testify. Actually, very few cases go to that level. But what they do is they provide professional and technical or scientific opinions about factual or evidentiary issues. And what's unique about expert witnesses is they actually can bring, unlike other witnesses that are called upon in a case, they can actually bring new evidence before the court that might not otherwise be available. So that's why lawyers will use them because they can provide the background to maybe the reason why something is done or the reason or support the scientific theory of of something. They can respond to hypothetical questions. They provide evidence about facts within their field of expertise. And 
What they also will be questioned on by the opposing legal team is they will try to discredit that person as an expert. So they want to work toward, and that's probably the most challenging part, but also sometimes the most interesting part of being an expert witness is they will challenge you to basically back up what you say with your credentials and what you've done. Okay. So would you say most of the cases that you are called upon to be an expert witness, are they typically workmen's compensation injured workers? Actually, they're not. Okay. So they're usually cases where someone is being sued and not necessarily for malpractice. I have been involved in one malpractice suit and that involved legal malpractice as opposed to, so it wasn't the clinician that was being called into question and what they did. It was the lawyer that had represented them in a workman's comp case. So that was actually the only workman's comp case that I've been involved in. Other times it's been lawsuits where somebody's being sued for It could be an employer being sued for how their workstations were set up or something like that. What is the, I guess, I know you said that many of them don't, or most of them don't end up like going to court or whatever, but what is the process kind of like start to finish or like, what is the length of time that, that this entails and how can it be months and months and months? Like we, sometimes we think of legal things going or, and you're getting wrapped up in this, or can you move pretty quickly through it? That's actually a really good question, Kara. Thank you. So they can go on for a long time, or they could be one contact only. You do you know, a few hours worth of work for a legal team. So it could be anything from a few hours to years. I had a case that went on. Oh gosh, let's see. It started, I would say, in 2016. And it was one of the cases that I worked on that actually did go to trial. So I actually did have to go testify. And I didn't testify until 2019. And so it had gone. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm working constantly for them. You know, it kind of comes and goes as far as like what they need you to do. If generally what will happen is they will ask you to do a record review. And so they'll send you records that they feel are pertinent to the case and your expertise in that case. So they may send you medical records, you may get therapy notes, you may get the emergency room records, you may also get employment records if they've been provided as evidence that if they think that you would be able to weigh in on, let's say, like a job description, for example, they will send you depositions. And so you will get very adept, I guess, at reading and figuring out depositions and how they're written and, and how to read them. And, and they, they sometimes, I feel like they read like an Agatha Christie novel. So it's interesting too, because you're looking at what both lawyers are asking the witness during the deposition or the subject, I should say, it could be the plaintiff or the defendant also in the deposition, or it could be somebody who witnessed an event. And so when you look at that, it can be very tedious, but then also it can be very interesting. And it's usually not until close to the end of the deposition that you find out really the true heart. So, so usually the lawyer is, is working up to and building a case and, and then the more pertinent questions may come at the end of the deposition. But I never leave anything out. I read the deposition from start to finish because you, know, you might lose some facts there and, and you have to take notes. You also have to be very conscious when you're doing things like record review of the time because like a lawyer, you're billing by the hour or by increments of that hour. So I always keep a legal pad next to me when I'm reading depositions and I, I record my start time and my finish time. Do you ever find that any of your, and I know you mentioned this earlier, trying to not 
bring your, your bias, but is that difficult? Like to try to keep your just bias and not questioning other therapists, what they're doing, but do you find that you have to catch yourself and make sure that you keep your bias as a clinician out of this process? That's a really good question too. So yeah, I guess your bias will come into play is, but I think that what you have to strive to do is you have to strive to be objective. And so when I, you know, I may have my personal biases, I try not to let them come into play. I look at what's published in the evidence and in peer reviewed articles and things like that. So for example, I've been involved in cases where I might have to read another therapist notes or, you know, since I have a certification in work capacity evaluation, I've been called upon to read functional capacity evaluations, which I've done, you know, a number of on my own. And when I review those, I have to make sure that they were done to the standards of, of what they need to be done by. And so for example, one case that I was working on, I had to look at a therapist functional capacity evaluation notes. And and one of the things that I noted was that they had done a test, a simple grip strength test with a dynamometer, but they had deviated from the standardization that ASHT in their their practice guidelines have published that that's how you do a reliable standardized grip strength test. If you are supporting the person's arm on a pillow and you're holding, you know, with really strong grip on to the dynamometer. And then you're going to record that person's strength. And then you're going to trace it back to the normative data saying that this person falls within this percentile for someone of that age and gender, then you've deviated from the standardization of the test. And so therefore that's something that I would call into question as far as the therapist technique recording the data is fine, but you can't trace it back to the normative data saying that they fit into this percentile if you've deviated from how the test should be done. Yeah, obviously the the importance of keeping to those, those standards. norms and the, yeah. Yeah, the standards of how how things are are done. Nice reminder to all of us. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, and, and if you don't and you record that, well, this is how I did the test, that's fine. But then sure. just don't make the person look like they're performing poorly because you're tracing it back to the normative data when you didn't use the standardization in the test. So now I'm not sure if I'm going to word this correctly, but if you were looking to like what qualifications, I know you have some certifications, but say if anybody out there wanted to do this, like what would make myself qualified to do it? Yes, obviously, because I'm a certified hand therapist, but is there anything else as far as training or any of those kind of things that any of our listeners like would go through to be able to, to do this or become an expert witness? What makes you know you an expert versus Karen expert versus me? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I may not consider myself an expert, but <laughs> but there might be things that you do have expertise in. So you know, and that's I guess. We haven't talked about this yet, but that's how legal teams may find you. So, you know, a lot of times people ask me, well, how can I get into expert witness work? And it's not something that I, you know, was ever striving to get into. So it's hard to answer that question. So how I had been found, well, that one person, the friend of my colleague, you know, she, it was just basically word of mouth. And I actually don't publish, I don't advertise there are different registries that you can pay to join, or you can, there are some free registries out there that, that lawyers use. So you can really explore all of those means to do so. But I think that you should have some feel for what you would be good at 
being an expert on. And so, you know, I've been asked, let's say, for example, so I'm a hand therapist. I'm also a professor and I've taught pretty much everything with adult physical disabilities over the years. And certain states will have different standards as far as, I'll give you an example. So I was called upon a few years ago if I could talk about standard practice of an occupational therapist in an acute rehabilitation setting. And they asked me a number of questions to see if I qualified it as an expert. And so I had taught for six years at a university. I taught master's level OT students, entry level skills in physical rehab. So I know the standards of practice for an OT in that setting. But since I hadn't done it for 12 months prior, I didn't qualify as an expert because at that point in time, I was the program director of an occupational therapy assistant program. And even though you and I know that there's a lot of similarities there, since I wasn't teaching occupational therapy students, I didn't qualify as an expert. So I was disqualified right there because what would happen, and, and you know, it was good that they explored that because it would be terrible if we got to a deposition or if we went to trial and then they disqualified me, the, the opposing legal team disqualified me as not a qualified expert because I, I didn't do what was being asked. Like I was, I hadn't done it for the past 12 months. So that was a state regulation for that state to qualify as an expert witness as you had to be doing that type of work over the previous 12 months. Yeah. They're quite discerning when they're looking yeah. for those. And so what you, what you had asked Steph earlier was that there are things that you, you probably feel like you're very good at. You know, like, I don't know what you do particularly in your practice, but let's, let's say, you know, you see a lot of patients with, Dequare veins or something like that. And then there's a case, yeah, because somebody who got Dequare veins that they're claiming they got it from their job and they need an expert witness to talk about Dequare veins. So if that's something that is an area of expertise or you've treated like thousands of Dequare veins patients, then you could be considered as as an expert. Okay. All right. I see. So I'm going to kind of throw this out there and it's kind of a laid back question, but you know, that first expert witness trial that you testified in, how were your nerves and like, how do you handle that? I know I got called to go to court for a patient of mine and it is nerve wracking as heck. I, you know, cause you don't want to say anything wrong. You have to stick to the questions. Like I was prepped for everything, probably for a half an hour for, I might've been on the stand for two minutes, you know, and it's, it is nerve wracking. What do you say? What do you don't say? How did you kind of learn how to do that? You know, I don't know. I wasn't <laughs> sure how it was going to go because, you know, when I did my first case, all I had to do was write an opinion. Oh, that's yeah, so good. I, did, I did a few hours of work. I reviewed some records. I wrote an opinion and it was on upper limb tension testing and, you know, and documentation of such. And I, you know, I utilized my textbooks and I referred to that and I thought, well, you know, this is okay. I could do this. And then I shortly thereafter got another call. And again, it was, it was basically reviewing some records. And what they wanted to know is since I had done functional capacity evaluations, they actually wanted to fly me into another state to do functional capacity evaluations. And I was like, well, I'm not licensed in that state. I guess I could get licensure. That's not a problem. And they were going to provide me with clinic space. But then after reviewing the deposition, so this was somebody who was suing their business partner based on an injury that they had gotten. And they had determined after the incident that they had that injured them, that they were never going to be able to work again. And right there, reviewing the records and the depositions and everything that this person did not follow through with therapy. 
So they didn't go to their, they, they went to maybe two or three therapy sessions and then ended it abruptly. They were not discharged. They discharged themselves. And then, you know, I reviewed those records and I, I had to say, it's like, well, I mean, I could do that for you. I could do the functional capacity evaluation, but I don't think it's going to garner anything. It's not going to help you in any way because that person already has demonstrated they have no interest in working and what's going to tell you that they put forth full effort during a functional capacity evaluation. There's nothing there that I would be able to probably show. So at best, I could show you what their functional minimums were as opposed to what their functional maximums are. And so I think that, yeah, again, always you know, working, you know, following good, strong ethical standards, being honest and, and not thinking about, well, gee, how much money can I make from this case? That builds your reputation. So that person referred me to another person. And so it was the third case that I actually ended up going to trial because I was thinking, well, yeah, two cases down now, like I've got this, yeah, I can write my opinions and, you know, we have good conversations and we go from there. And, you know, I had, in the meantime, I had done a little bit of reading. There are some textbooks that you can find out there on Amazon or whatever you know, website you like to buy literature from, but there are some, some books out there for people to help them be expert witnesses or, or help them to be better expert witnesses, I guess I would say. And, so I had started reading those and you know, like, and I realized that like very few cases that actually go to trial. So that, okay, you know, I can do this. And then, you know, lo and behold, third trial, third time's a charm. I, <laughs> I, I, <had> so <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have to do a deposition, which was good, but I had to go to trial. And unlike, <laughs> unlike your story where you were on the stand for two minutes, I was on the stand for about two and a half hours. Oh <sighs> my goodness. They wow. flew me, you know, I had to fly five hours to another state. I was basically there for one night and then a day. So I, I, I flew in, I got prepped by the legal team. And then the next day we went to trial early in the morning and then they had me on an afternoon flight back home. So that I was not prepared for the two and a half hours or so that I was on the stand. But I guess, you know, despite all the nerves, I did pretty well. The legal team that I was representing, they were very pleased. And they did win the case. So they won the case. And, you know, the thing that you don't prepare for, I guess, is that the, what the opposing legal team, when they've got you on the stand, the types of things that they're going to do to try to throw you off balance. And even before I was on the stand, so it, when we got to the courthouse in the morning, I was waiting in the antechamber in front of the courtroom that we were going into because the, the judge was on a conference call. So we were all stuck out there. So you had the defendants and the plaintiffs all in the same room together and there was tension. And the lawyer from the opposing team walked up to me and he said, oh, Dr. Gerg, you look much different than your picture on the university website. <laughs> and so I, was, <laughs> I just looked at him, I smiled, okay. and, you know, maybe because I originally am from the Northeast and so I can take a good blunt insult. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I guess maybe a subtle insult. And I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to take that. I don't know if I look better or worse. And I just, I just went from there, but I realized that it was, you know, there's a bit of a mind game that's going on when you do these things. Mm -hmm. Cause I guess their whole thing is to discredit you as far as your ability to be that expert. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I guess can be intimidating. Yeah. And people <laughs> will have different strategies. And I have a couple good friends that I went to college with that actually they turned out to be workers comp lawyers. And I remember sitting down having dinner with one of my friends who was a workers comp lawyer. And I was talking about that particular case where the, where the gentleman was saying that I looked different than my picture. And then when I got on the stand, there were a lot of other things that happened. And 
you know, my friend said, well, you know, he was trying to make you angry. And by making you angry, he could throw you off balance. And my friend said, that's not the technique that I use. I use a very soft approach. I'm very nice and friendly. I'll, I'll make you think I'm your friend. And then toward the end, I'll start asking you the tough questions. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that my friend who was a lawyer recommended was he said, you know, throw them off their cadence because they will ask you questions and they'll make you feel like they expect a quick answer. And, and so the legal team that prepared me for my first testimony, plus my friend who was saying, you know, be thoughtful, take your time, take a step back, think about it. You don't have to answer in any time frame. And so when they're asking rapid fire questions to you, if that's not your style to answer back quickly, don't do it. And that throws them off their cadence. Yeah, you can kind of take back the control of that that conversation. So you get asked to help like on either side, defendant or or I guess plaintiff side. Yes. Yeah, I've represented both, probably more defendants than I have plaintiffs at this point, but that's just who's contacted me. And, you know, really to be a good expert, if you're going to go out and try to make a career or, or at least a part-time career out of this, you should be willing to represent both. And you should have a record because you will be asked to provide documentation of the cases that you've participated in in the past. So you have to start keeping those records. Kind of like you build your resume or your curriculum vitae, you have to keep your records of the different cases that you've participated in. What would you say is the hardest part about being an expert witness? I would say providing that testimony or even a deposition. Those are just difficult because it's, you have to be, it's like a chess match. You have to be in there and, and just really, you know, always be true to yourself and true to the, the legal team that you're representing. Because if you're outgunned, then you're just better off to admit that. If you feel like you're in over your head or that you can't help, then you should just admit that because it's not going to work well in your favor for your reputation out in the legal community to have, you know, really misrepresented yourself and, and not provided, you know, the best testimony or the best expert witness work that, you know, like if, if you feel like somebody else might be better qualified, it might be best for you to be honest and, and just admit that. So on the flip side of that, what would you say is the most enjoyable and or fulfilling part of being an expert witness? I think really just helping people. You know, sometimes, again, I wouldn't work for somebody who was was asking me to do something dishonest or was trying to tease something out. I think that I, like, the biggest thing that I stand on is, is my ethics and being true to my profession as well as, as just the population. And knowing that what you're doing, you know, you are actually helping the legal system understand what we do. And so if we're not doing it, who's going to do it? And so that's what I find the most gratifying out of this is that we're, we're really doing good work out there. It's just working at a different level than what we do normally day to day as therapists, but you're, you're helping the legal system to understand. And also, you know, you have to remember that most times if you are providing testimony, there's going to be a jury present. So all the two trials that I've gone to trial and had to provide testimony, there have been juries present. And so you're educating the community as well. And what's interesting is in some states, the jury gets to ask you questions. Now, they don't ask you directly usually. It's usually they hand in questions to the judge, and then the judge will, will ask you the questions. I think that's a really good point that you make of that you are educating and representing our profession instead of having someone else. I mean, I think any of us would 
prefer, especially if we were the ones in a legal suit, that we would want one of our peers being able to represent what our profession is or making sure that I would want to make sure another therapist was the one combing through my documentation. Because like you said, you you do understand. You can kind of see the nuance of why things were done the way that they were or and make a case for that as opposed to someone who is outside of our profession and just says either questions what we did or might it might be done in, a, in another profession a different way but to truly be able to represent how it is performed or done or the evidence in our profession and you're able to represent that and speak for that yes i agree that is very well well stated so I know you said that you do this, would you say you do this part-time? You do have full-time job? I do. Yeah. So in my everyday life, I'm, I'm a professor and I'm a program coordinator of an occupational therapy program in Arizona. So does it get pretty intense? Like if you are in a case, how much time are you spending? You know, is it hours a day going over the material and reading through everything you need to read through? I bet it can get pretty intense at times. It can be, but usually there's there's long periods of time. So they will let you know unless they contact you late and they just need somebody to do some record review really quickly. And I've, I've had a couple of cases like that, but you know, I don't work seven days a week in my full-time job. So if I have to, I can carve out some time over a weekend or something like that and do it. But you know, the other thing is, is that I think that well, personally, I don't know anybody. I haven't met anybody who's a full-time expert witness because if, if you're a full-time expert witness, then how do you maintain a credential to be able to be an expert if you're not practicing in your field? And so now there are people like I had an opposing expert who I had to look over his deposition and he looked over mine and we kind of disagreed on multiple levels. And that person was an engineer and it was over an ergonomics case. And so we came at it from different perspectives, but I think that, you know, what we had to, and that was another one that I went to testify in that case. And so it was just basically who could help the jury understand best what we were trying to say. And I think that's another area where as OTs or PTs that we can do that because we understand life, not just things from an engineering standpoint. And there, I mean, not to say that there aren't engineers out there that can do that as well. You know, there are many engineers that are qualified in human factors and things like that and, and have seen that field change over the years. But we're not always going up against, you know, like another OT or another PT. It could be somebody from another profession if we have areas of expertise in that area. Like it could be an occupational health nurse, or I've written opinions about physical therapy of functional capacity evaluations that were performed by physical therapists. And so even though we're not from the same profession, we're doing the same type of work. And so if you understand how to do a functional capacity evaluation, it doesn't matter. I mean, there are nowadays, I think there are even athletic trainers that are doing functional capacity evaluations. So I think it's hard to really do this full time and you control the amount of work that comes to you. You can accept cases or decline cases. And again, if you're going to put forth your best effort and do your due diligence, then if you're accepting too many cases at a time, then you're probably going to be in over your head and you won't be able to, and you'll probably get things mixed up and, and you'll make mistakes. And shortly thereafter, nobody will be calling you anymore. I haven't had a case. Well, I think COVID probably kind of 
hurt that industry a little bit as well, because I think a lot of court cases were getting held up as well. But I haven't had a case since 2019. There are things that I've done that could come back. So you know, you may do some work for a legal team, you provide an opinion, or you, you point them in the right direction, and then things don't happen in the case for a while, but then they do later on. So I could, there are a couple of cases that I, I provided some work for, and then I haven't heard back. So there could be some things that could come up, but then you know, like I might get another call from, from someone who hears from one of the lawyers that I've helped before, or I've had a couple law firms that have called me for a couple of times for different things. And that's where my current challenge is, is like, well, how do I, how do I expand? How do I reach a broader audience if I want to do more of this work? And, and should I, you know, and there's, like I said there before, there are different ways to go. You can join registries. There are some registries that you pay to get on and they're kind of pricey. And then there are other registries that if they get you hired by a legal team, they take a cut of whatever money you would get paid for working on that case. I was going to ask if you kind of a, like a, a wrap up, if you had advice for someone who like just got contacted to be an expert witness, this was going to be their first, not thinking it's going to trial, but what would be your one or two like top guidance or nuggets that you would give them as they're stepping into this role? What would be your best piece of advice for them? I guess, well, the first thing I would say, if you don't perform well in adversarial situations, I would not go into this work. And I never thought of myself as doing that, but I do like to, my wife would tell you, I like to argue from the standpoint of, (laughs) I like to argue my point. I like to, I like to be understood. So I can argue a point and I can do it in a way that that's professional. And so if you can do that, and if you're not easily angered, if you're not put off, the other thing I would say too, is if you have things in your past or your history or whatever that you feel that could be revealed that you don't necessarily want to be brought up in a court of law, that would be another thing that I would, I would steer clear of, or, you know, you always have to be aware of what you've done in the past. If you've written things, you know, like I would caution people, about using social media for certain things, because again, that could be discovered and that could be brought up in a, in a court of law or, you know, whatever pictures you post on Instagram or something like that. So those types of things could be brought into question. If you want to do that type of work, you know, reach out to someone, if you know somebody who's a lawyer, if you're trying to set a, a reasonable rate, but that was something I should say that was brought up by that very adversarial gentleman who had me on the stand my first testimony, he looked into, because you have to provide all of like your billing and everything so that they know how much the legal team is paying you. And he was really upset by the fact that I was, I came cheap. And so that, you know, again, I didn't know, I didn't know what rate to set. That's always a question. And my own ergonomic consulting business at the time. And so I was just basically charging my consulting rate and it was way cheaper than what most expert witnesses were charging. And so, you know, he brought that up as a question and and I don't remember how I responded, but it was really something that he wanted to make an issue out of, but apparently the jury did not think it was that big of an issue because I guess I was letting them off cheaply. 
but it's you know it's something that some people charge quite a bit of money for. I've I've heard that some physicians might charge ten thousand dollars an hour for a deposition. Oh, wow! If they're experts in their field, like if they're research yeah. physicians or something like that. Yeah. Now you're not going to make yeah. that as a head therapist. <laughs> as an I was expert witness, say, so. maybe I need to sign up for this. <laughs> That's the kind of money I can make. No. <laughs> nice side job. <laughs> maybe someday I'll get that. I don't think I'll ever get to that level. But that's something. So, you know, I mean, be prepared to do your homework. You might have to not really go back to school, but you might have to break out your textbooks and just make sure that how you've been practicing and, and how you normally practice, that that's truly how things still are because, you know, things do change. And in order to be a good evidence-informed practitioner, you need to actually stay abreast of what's what's current in evidence. Yeah, that's one good thing to let everybody know. You know, when we're practicing, make sure you're doing it the way it should be done because you never know. <laughs> yeah, because that, well, I mentioned earlier that functional capacity evaluation where the person was doing dynamometry testing and they deviated from the standard, but then they wanted to pull out the normative data and use that. And that basically cost that legal team, I think that was a $4.6 million case. And so, you know, you're, you're just there to report the facts. It's, and I wasn't saying one way or the other, whether this person should be paid what they were suing for. But what I did have to say was that, well, if you're going to base that determination on this is that, well, these are the facts. The facts are that this person performed this evaluation and they performed it incorrectly in a way that you can't determine whether or not this person could return to their work or not, or that they would ever work again for that matter. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been super eye-opening for me. I never knew what truly an expert witness was or did or how that came into play in our profession. So this has been really interesting to talk with you and, and learn about this. So we appreciate you being here. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue to offer valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.